Amen. You may be seated. It's great to see our children here, as Pastor David said. You guys have a great class. Be nice to your teachers. Be nice to your teachers. All right, if you would, take your Bibles and find your way to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you. You can find the 17th chapter of Judges on page 202. How many of you love succotash? That word just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Succotash. I, for one, do not like succotash. When I was in grade school, just a few years ago, they would service on occasion succotash, which was a mixture of corn, peas, and lima beans in this kind of sauce that just would make you shudder. And they, they, they gave it to us with a smile. It is ever since that, that time I have been totally against any type of succotash. In fact, I've learned that succotash can be anything you want it to be. Start with a little bit of corn, start with some lima beans and some peas, and then you can add whatever you want. You can, you can add hominy, you can add turnips, you can add onions, potatoes, corned beef, okra, whatever you want. Succotash, I heard the bacon, <laughs> then it's not succotash. <laughs> then it's bacon with vegetables. The fact is, you can make succotash whatever you want it to be. Now, why am I here introducing this message with an explanation of that forbidden fruit, succotash? Because that's the way many of us treat our faith. Spiritual succotash. That's the title of the message today. You start with a bit of God. Add a few verses. Throw in a bit of this and a bit of that. And then all of a sudden you have this dish, this stew of spiritual succotash that doesn't look anything like biblical Christianity. In fact, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, gives you a little bit of insight into that. It says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We start adding all these things in, and it becomes spiritual succotash. And that's what we find when we get to Judges chapter 17 and 18. We see this spiritual succotash. In fact, everybody just... On three, just I want you to say succotash. One, two, three. Succotash. You got to have almost a little accent when you say it. Chapter 17 starts really the third and final section of Judges. In the first two chapters, really going into chapter 3, verse 6, you have this introduction to the apostasy of the nation of Israel, God's people. And then from chapter 3 to chapter 16, you see this downward spiral that we've been talking about over and over again about how the people would sin, God would judge, the, the people would cry out for help, and then God would restore. And it would just continue to go into this downward spiral. And then we get to chapter 17, and you see this, this, this the depths of Israel's apostasy. Now, chapter 17 and 18 is this picture, it's a picture of spiritual corruption that takes place with God's people. 
And that spiritual corruption leads to verses, chapters 19 through 21, where you have moral corruption. So spiritual corruption leads to moral corruption. If you want to know where moral corruption comes from, it's having a wrong view of God. It's having not a vertical view of life, but a horizontal view. There's a moral corruption that's caused by spiritual corruption. Now, when you read Judges, you you, you got to get to a point where you start asking yourself, how could God's people fall so far away from God? Well, chapter 2, verse 10 of Judges gives us insight of how it starts. I'll put it up. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, this generation after Joshua. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There was another generation that didn't know the Lord. They weren't grounded in God's word. They didn't know the truth of who God was and all the things that he had done. And then you get to chapter 17 and verse 6, and it bottom lines it. Look at chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, leading to spiritual what? Secatash. In fact, you see it again in chapter 18, verse 1. There was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. And then the last verse of, of, of Judges itself, chapter 21, verse 25. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what is right in their own eyes. Judges was written to show us the consequences of apostasy, to warn against the ravages of spiritual succotash, to remind us of our need. For the one true king. It's a reminder that we must rid ourselves of false gods. Of anything that could lead us away from a true understanding of who Jesus is and what God has called us to be. To move us away from any type of false religion. Which leads me to the big point of this message and I'll put it on the screen. The way we prevent practicing a false religion a.k.a. spiritual succotash, is to have a right theology founded on God's word. Let me say that again. The way we prevent practicing a falling into of a false religion, a spiritual succotash, is to have a right theology, a right understanding of God that's founded on God's word. Now, any discussion dealing with true faith Biblical faith must always start with God. It must start with Christ. It must start with an understanding of God's word because the minute we start with, well, this is what I think, or this is, this is the way I feel, all of a sudden you now are on a slippery slope into what? Spiritual succotash. So I want to answer one question three different ways today. As we look into these passages, here's the question. What happens when God's word is not our guide? Pretty simple question. What happens when God's word is not our guide? Here's the, here's the, here's the first answer. Our religion becomes self-made. Our religion becomes self-made. Now let's look at chapter 1, or chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, 
the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is, is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate this silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Now we're introduced to this man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim. He was a Jew. He was part of the nation of Israel. And we immediately see the irony in this man. His name means who is like Yahweh. Clearly, he is not. In fact, his name is a contradiction to his own character and actions. Now, we know that he comes from a wealthy family. I mean, he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. Now, can you just imagine him going into her purse and counting out 1,100 pieces of silver? And we know from, from, from last week's message, that's a tremendous amount of money. She discovers the money is missing, and she calls down a curse on the person that stole it, the thief, not knowing that it was her son. Well, Micah, hearing that curse, didn't want to be under a curse, so he confesses. Not because of any conviction of the Holy Spirit, but he just did not want a curse upon him. This was superstition. And his mom, wanting to reverse the curse, notice what she says. Blessed be my son by the Lord. I mean, when she says, blessed be my son by the Lord, notice that Lord is in caps. That's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. She's taking the name of Yahweh, trying to reverse the curse against her son. Now, this is where things get a little bit wonky. Notice what she does. She says in, in verse 3, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. So notice the succotash coming into place. I'm going to dedicate this silver to the Lord, and guess what I'm going to do with it? We're going to make graven images. We're going to make household gods with it. I mean, talk about warped. And it just gets worse from there. First of all, she says she's going to dedicate all the money to the Lord. But notice she only gives 200 pieces of, of silver to the silversmith. So I'm not sure what happened to the rest of it. But the second problem is that she dedicated the money to the Lord by making carved images violating God's law, starting with, and I'm going to put a number of verses up here because I want you to see how off the rails she is, starting with the Ten Commandments, starting with the first and second commandment. We see that in Exodus chapter, chapter 20 where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. Then he moved, then I want to look at Leviticus chapter 26. 
You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. God is a jealous God. He wants no other idols. He, you know, and it was, it was uh, John Calvin that says our, our minds are idol-making factories. Get rid of the idols. Listen to Deuteronomy 27.15. Curse it. Curse it be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing by, made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Now, if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write down Isaiah 44, 9 through 22, I believe it is. I'm just going to read a couple verses of this, but it speaks of the folly of idolatry. And and in verse verse, uh, 15, it says, then it shall become fuel for a man. This is speaking of the wood that's cut for making idols. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. So he uses part of the wood that he's making an idol with. Shows you the futility of it. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He then, he makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the, the, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Spiritual succotash. Thinking that these idols will save them. God created the trees that he's actually using. But he's forsaken the one true God. This is an abomination to God. Micah creates his own Religion. Look at verse 5 again. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod. An ephod is what the priest would wear when he would make intercessions before God. And household gods. And he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. I mean, talk about a downward spiral. This is spiritual anarchy. And we get to verse 6, and the writer of Judges bottom lines it. Notice what he says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own mind. Notice it doesn't say everybody did what was wrong in their own mind. See, in their minds, they were doing what they thought was right. But what they thought was right was wrong in God's eyes. See, we can think we are right and be absolutely wrong. And that's what you see here. The nation had devolved into this self-thought about religion and about God because they weren't grounded in the word of God. And they started creating their own religion. This spiritual succotash. Here was a man who rejected God and his truth. Now, he would never have said that because he was really good at speaking Christianese. He embraced the pagan thinking of moral relativism. If if it feels right, do it. 
Everybody has their own truth. He was practicing his own religion. It was devoid of God's word. He was practicing a word that's called syncretism. That's where you combine and blend different elements of pagan religion with the worship of God. It's religious succotash. You take a little bit of God. You add some new age to it or maybe some Hinduism or maybe some Buddhism or maybe some Taoism. And this is what you get when you add your thinking to God's truth. It's apostasy. It's effectively abandoning the faith for what you think is right in your own eyes. And so often it's people trying to find hope and joy and peace and love in all the wrong places. And you know what I'm excited about? We start next week, like if somebody's struggling with with peace or hope, we're going to show you where that peace is found. We're going to show you where that love is found, where that joy is found, where the the hope is found. We're going to be starting our, our Advent series next week. But the other thing you see is this is sacramentalism, where they're They're trusting in the sacraments, believing in religious externals, trinkets, beads, household gods, rote prayers, or maybe going to church or being baptized. It's like like we trust in those things, but they don't don't have anything to do with the one true God. See, we don't get baptized to try to get approved by God. We get baptized as a result of our saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's the reason we must be the people of the word. Because if we're not the people of the word, then all of a sudden we start practicing, we start adding different things to the one true faith. But you know what the number one excuse is for people not spending time in the word? Anybody know what it is? don't have time. I'm too busy. Really? If you were to take just half the time you spent on social media or playing video games or scrolling YouTube or watching sports or any other forms of entertainment and dedicated that to the Word of God, you would know the Word of God. In fact, Hosea 4.6 says this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's what you see with this Micah. His life is going to be destroyed for lack of knowledge. Listen to what Spurgeon says. I love this. He says, you will never know the, nope, that's not it. I think Spurgeon's quote, we might have it. Maybe we don't. I'll read it. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else. Let me say that again. There it is. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else. We need to beware beware of religion void of revelation. Any type of religion that is void that is absent of a true understanding of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, if Israel was worshiping Yahweh, 
they wouldn't be doing what's right in their own eyes. They would be doing what's right in God's eyes. And the fact is, the lack of spiritual authority led to spiritual chaos. So, the first answer to the question, what happens when, our, when God's word is not our guide, is our religion becomes self-made. But secondly, our service becomes self-seeking. Our service becomes self-seeking. Look at verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem uh, to, uh, in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Okay, so we're introduced to an unnamed man who we will learn his name later on. He's young, he's from Bethlehem, and he's of the tribe of Judah, and he's a Levite. But he's also a sojourner. He's looking for a place to settle, a place to call home. But here's the thing about Levites. Levites, as appointed by God, were not opportunists. They were not called to move from place to place. In fact, they were allotted, the Levites were allotted not territories but 48 different cities in which they were to minister. In fact, Bethlehem was not one of them. So this man, who's a Levite, is also young, is now looking for an opportunity. He's kind of trying to upgrade his, his living situation. He wasn't content with God's call. His service becomes self-seeking. He's looking for a better gig. He's, he's discontent with his current situation. Look at verse 9. And Micah said to him, so he goes to Micah's house, and Micah says to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to, surge, uh, to sojourn where I might find a place. In that moment, Micah's thinking, I have hit the mother load. I mean, I've got this household shrine, I've got household gods, and, and I've, I've, got, I've got all these different images. The one thing I'm missing is like, my priest is my son, and he's just not that great of a priest. Like, you're a Levite. I, I'm going to make you a priest. Look at verse 10. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Can you, can you, just, can you smell the spiritual succotash on the cooktop? It's just like permeating everywhere. What's going on here? What looked like a win-win was really just a joke. The Levite was to serve in one of his 48 cities, but now he's not there. The word young man means a lad. So he was maybe a teenager or just in his young 20s. Levites didn't, didn't get ordained until they were 30 years old. Third, he wasn't of the house of Aaron. And plus, Deuteronomy prescribed a stipend for Levites. But in verse 10 we see, like he is upgraded. He gets... He gets 10 pieces of silver a year. He gets a new suit for men's warehouse each year and a place to live. I mean, this is a great situation. You'd think it's a win-win. But had 
both Micah and this man been rooted in God's word. This man's service would not have been one of self-seeking. He would have wanted to do what's right in the Lord's eyes. Now, the question I'm asking is, are there opportunists in the ministry today? Yeah, you could do your head like this. There's a lot of them. And, and it's, a, it's a scary place to be because they're not doing the Lord's work. They're just trying to improve their position. This man became like a rabbit's foot to, to, uh, to Micah. And the, and the young Levite was happy to, happy to oblige. But then you see this sickening verse, verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. That's the prosperity gospel right there, the prosperity gospel. If I have this, if I do this, then the Lord will prosper me. I mean, he, he, he's, it's like his, his house priest is his Jesus genie. You just take the little bottle out, you rub it, and, and, and all of a sudden, poof, you get it, whatever you want. Spiritual succotash. You say certain words, and the Lord will bless you. You just think a certain way. You say certain things. You do certain things. Listen, we are called to serve the Lord, to live for the Lord, not to use the Lord for our own self-seeking ways. When God's word is not our guide, our religion becomes self-made. Our service becomes self-seeking. And third, our Christianity becomes a search for ease. Our Christianity just becomes a search for ease. Look at verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Heard that before? It's almost like a conclusion to what we just heard, but it also becomes an introduction to chapter 18. See, what we've seen in chapter 17 is Micah, his mom, and his Levitical priest, who wasn't a priest, devolve into this spiritual succotash. But now we're going to see not just a few individuals, but we're going to see a whole tribe of, of uh, Israel. We're going to see the Danites fall into this spiritual succotash. They're going to go off the rails also. Look at verse 1 again. In those days there was no king of, in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. When you first read that, you start to feel bad for the tribe of Dan. Those poor people, they had no place to live. But if you understand history, and it's really important to understand history, to understand where you are today, Joshua chapter 19 tells us that Dan was actually allotted a territory, a great territory. In fact, they, they were near Ephraim. They, they, they were against the, the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Yet, in disobedience to the Lord, they did not push out the Amorites. In fact, in Judges chapter 1, verse 34, it says that because they didn't push out the Amorites, they ended up living up in the hill country. They were disobedient to what God had called them to do. And so now they're, they're forced 
to live in the hills, and they had two choices. To repent of their, their unbelief and their disobedience and go route out the, the Amorites and take the land that God had promised them. Or maybe go find a kinder, gentler people that they could destroy and take over their land. Guess what they did? Going to take the easy way out. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it's a little tougher, it's a little tougher to, be dis, to be obedient to the Lord and to have faith in him. So they spent out, sent out spies, and those spies come to the house of Micah. Look at verse 2. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of the tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. Like everybody seems to be going to Micah's house right now. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. I don't know if, if it was they knew him or if they just noticed that he had an accent because he was from the south. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Okay. So Micah's gone. These five spies come to the house of Micah. The Levite is there. They inquire what he's doing there. He says, I'm a priest for hire. And they go, great. Inquire of the Lord if we're, if we're on the right track. Here's the problem. They weren't. They had gone against the word of God. We can, we can ask what God's will all day long is, but if we're going against the word of God, we're out of God's will. And that's what's happening here. Inquire of us. And guess what the rent-a-priest wants to do? I mean, it's like, does he even pray? Notice verse 6. And the priest said to him, go in peace. I mean, this is like your best Christianese. The Lord be with you. Go in peace. You're on the right track. Gag me with a spoon. This is like, this is what gives Christians a bad name. So the men depart. They see an unsuspecting people and they report their findings. Look at verse 7. Then the five men departed, came to Laish, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting. So, so you just get this picture of, of like they come over this valley and there's just like, it must be like ponds and people living there and smoke coming out of the chimneys. It's just a really quiet little place. And, 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 the, and the Danites see this. In fact, it says, they were lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. Verse 8, and when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtel, their brothers said to them, what do you report? So they saw this peaceful people, they go back to the Danites and they report. Verse 9, they said, arise and let us go up against them for we have seen the land and behold it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter it and possess the land. And as soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, 
For God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 of the men, 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zor and Eshtael and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Manahan, uh, Mahanan Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Here they go, back at Micah's house. I mean, Micah, I don't know, it's, it's like some families, they like to put out treats and stuff for the Amazon deliverers and UPS deliverers. And you think of Micah is doing that because everybody's going by there. They all happen to end up there. But notice what, what takes place here. The, whole, the apostasy of the whole tribe shows up. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. Remember, Dan was one of the 12 tribes of Judah. They had the law. They knew what the law said. And all of a sudden, like, there's household gods. There's an ephod. There's metal images. Verse 6, 15, and they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. That would be a little bit intimidating. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600, armed, uh, 600 men armed with their weapons and and when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth. We have another way of saying that. It's a word that my parents told us never to use. Don't say shut up. That's what they're really saying. Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest? To a tribe and clan in Israel. Now, for an upwardly mobile young Levitical priest who had no grounding in God's word, what a great opportunity this just became. I mean, the Lord must be leading me. Verse 20, and the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod. Here he said, I'll take the ephod and the household gods and the carved images. And he went along with the people. So he's got his arms full of all this stuff. Verse 21 says, so they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. So they take off the 600 men. They put the kids and all in front of them. They've got the soldiers in back. Why? Because at some point, Micah's going to find out. You've got to hear in the background, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own mind. Here was a people of God that had devolved into spiritual succotash. So Micah gets home and he sees the shrine and the peace priests are gone. So he rallies the valley, goes sons, 11 straight, maybe 12 tonight. And he takes the group to retrieve them. Look at verse 22. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, 
what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? So Micah, with some of the people from the valley, they catch up to the Danites. They cry out to them. And then you see verse 24 is a really sad statement. And he said, this is Micah, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? You took all my trinkets. You took all my religious stuff. What do I have left? It's pretty sad. Micah wants to fight for his trinkets, his dead idols, his faux priests. Fact is, we as Christians, we worship the one true king, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. We worship a God that strips away all of this stuff. And even if it's all gone, we've got him. I'll never forget Ken Brown. Pam and I have been believers maybe for less than a year, and I hear him pray. Lord, if you don't do anything else for me, I'm thankful for the salvation you gave me. And I'm content with that salvation. Like that struck me. Christianity is something other than just getting stuff. It's a relationship with the living God. God sent his son into this world to die on the cross to save us of our sins. He was raised on the third day. He he came to save us from religion and trinkets and false teachers. He came to save us and to give us eternal life. Yet Micah wants to fight for all that. Well, the Danites were not going to have anything of it. Look at verse 25. And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to the people, here's that quiet little neighborhood again, to, the, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they built the city and lived in it. And they, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity in the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Okay. It seems like all is good now for the Danites. But. There's two things I want you to see. First of all, even in their sin, life seems hunky-dory. It's like we got away with it. But there's an axiom of sowing and reaping. You sow the wind, you reap the what? The whirlwind. Now, sometimes it takes time. 
In fact, when you read 1 Chronicles, and the writer of 1 Chronicles speaks about the 12 tribes and lists all the descendants of each of the tribes, guess which tribe is missing? Dan. You get to Revelation chapter 7. And it speaks of the tribes that make up the 144,000. Guess what one tribe is missing? Dan. They thought, and in the moment, it seemed that everything is great. Here was a people that took the easy way. They did not take what God had given them, and they took what God had not given them. And in the long run, they lost it all. But here's the second thing you see. Notice in verse 30. It says, the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, this is the name of the priest. And he was the son of Gershom. Who was the son of whom? Moses. He was the grandson, this Levitical priest was the grandson of Moses. He wasn't even of the tribe of Aaron. He wasn't even of the family of Aaron. He was, a, he, and he was, he was the grandson of the great lawgiver, and two generations away, he's become the late great lawbreaker. It's a reminder that godliness is not genetic. There rose another generation that did not know the Lord or the things that the Lord had done. It's a reminder that we as parents must teach the truths of God's word. But most importantly, we must be grounded in God's word. The fact is we're all susceptible to false religions. And the way we prevent the practicing of it is to be grounded in the word of God. Let me ask you, are you grounded in the word of God? Not just based on what we're doing here on Sunday, but as a lifestyle, knowing the word, living the word. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. My, my prayer is for us is that we wouldn't be a people that would do what's right in our own eyes. But we would be a people that is so committed to the word of God and so committed to the truths of God that we would always do what's right in God's eyes. That he would be our hope. He would be our joy. He would be our peace. He would be our foundation of love. Father, thank you for this, this series that we've been in. And just a reminder that so many of these characters could have been about us. But Lord, I pray as I, I know that these things were written as examples to us that we would not sin as they sinned. Father, I pray if there's anyone that has just found themselves distant from you, that Lord, even in this moment, they would come back to you. Father, I pray if there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that today they would recognize their sin and the fact that the wages of their sin is death, but they would understand that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, that they would turn to you 
by faith, confessing their sins, asking you to be their Lord and Savior. Father, help us to be a people committed to your truths. In Jesus' name I pray.